Welcome back to our special series on search and rescue. This is the third episode in the series. So if you're just joining us, you're gonna wanna go back and listen to the previous two. Home to North America's highest peak and over 6 million acres of wild Alaskan tundra, Denali National Park and Preserve is the stuff of dreams for climbers, skiers, and hikers. But for all its allure, Denali is equally infamous for accidents. Crevasse-riddled glaciers, high-altitude conditions, and extreme weather systems make Denali both a captivating and inhospitable place to recreate. When you compare fatality rates with visitation numbers, Denali is the most dangerous national park in the country. The 20,000-foot peak alone has claimed the lives of well over 100 mountaineers in the last century, and that number might be far higher if not for the volunteers and professionals who dedicate their lives to keeping climbers safe. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. In June of 2017, Tucker Chenoweth had served as Denali National Park and Preserve South District Ranger for a little over a year. The role was the culmination of almost two decades experience in Denali. He had volunteered for numerous month-long patrols on the mountain over the years, leaning on his ski patroller background to assist in rescues. That led to a seasonal position as a mountaineering ranger and eventually to his current gig overseeing rangers and volunteers. For all his years aiding distressed climbers on Denali's remote glaciers, there's one rescue that sticks out. So the Kildna Glacier is a massive glacier with really big crevasses. We had a crevasse fall into a crevasse about 60 feet. The individual got stuck. And so we had an incredible group effort, including a bunch of mountain guides and SAR folks initially descend down into the crevasse, try to help. It was a 15-hour extrication. This particular rescue was a claustrophobic nightmare. The fallen climber was wedged in a narrow space, trapped between walls of ice. Using power tools, the crew had to painstakingly chip away at the ice in order to maneuver around and eventually free the individual. Throughout the rescue, Tucker was in Talkeetna working incident command, allocating resources to the guides, volunteers, and rangers on the ground. Through that 15 hours, there was eight to 10 people that went down into this crevasse and did what they could and then came up and then another one would go in and chip away and chip away. And he was getting colder and colder. His mentation was just decreasing with those temperatures, very difficult to get any kind of pulse any kind of pain or verbal response. Didn't believe he was gonna make it at the time. And finally, we were able to extricate this individual. And in the end, he made a recovery. 
It's successful rescues like this and the desire to help people that drove Tucker to apply for a volunteer patrol on Denali in 2001. Now, keeping climbers safe is his full-time job, but volunteers are still the backbone of search and rescue operations on Denali and across the country. What I really enjoy is when, you know, when people are in their time of need and there's nobody else that's available with the skill set to help them out, that was where I felt like I could really make a difference. Search and rescue organizations look different across the country, each with varying resources and challenges. But by and large, with exceptions like the National Park Service, search and rescue teams rely heavily on volunteers. It's a common misconception from those who count on their services to make it home safely. One thing we heard again and again while interviewing rescuers was people don't realize we're mostly volunteers. Today, we're profiling three search and rescue agencies from across the country in New Hampshire, Colorado, and Alaska. They represent the many triumphs and challenges that rescuers face today. On Denali, full-time staff like Tucker coordinate search and rescue efforts, but volunteers make up a significant portion of the teams that patrol the mountain and responding to accidents. So these patrols go 25 to 30 days in length in the wilderness. So you really are out in the field, learning the language of the mountains. You really bond with your team. North America's highest peak is a highly technical, high-stakes environment to be a volunteer, and not just anyone can sign up to help. The, the program up here was always heavily based in volunteer. When the program kind of started late 80s, early 90s, there was you know one or two climbing rangers here that worked for the park service, and the only way to get anything done on the mountain was to like invite your climbing and skiing buddies as volunteers. Since then, the program's grown quite a bit. There's 10 of us as climbing rangers. Some are seasonal, some are permanent. And each of us then has a high mountain patrol or a Denali patrol. And the only way we can cover the mountain for the climbing season is to have volunteers on each of those that bring skill sets to the patrol. So they're highly skilled professionals in other fields. They're paramedics, they're doctors, they're guides, they're uh, mountain professionals in other ways. Without the volunteer program, our resources and our ability to help on the mountain would be greatly reduced. Outside national parks, ranger-coordinated rescue organizations are few and far between. And while some might be under the leadership of a full-time staff, most certain rescue members have day jobs. Colorado is home to many such organizations. I'm Anna DeBatiste. I'm the public information officer for Summit County Rescue Group and for the Colorado Search and Rescue Association. The acronym there is CSAR. CSAR doesn't perform rescue missions itself, but supports dozens of rescue organizations across Colorado through advocacy and education. In addition to assisting in coordination efforts statewide, Anna also works boots on the ground as a volunteer for her local SAR team in Summit County. She knows better than anyone that the need for volunteers varies greatly between SAR teams in different locations, whereas Denali Rangers seek out volunteers with a high level of technical skills for the extreme conditions of the Alaska Range, other teams like Anna's have different priorities. 
Most teams are looking for people who have the time, the desire, and good teamwork skills because the other stuff we can train. We can put someone through a wilderness first responder course and we can teach them how to do technical rescue or avalanche rescue or swift water rescue. We can't necessarily teach them to be a good teammate. Being part of a SAR team involves a significant commitment outside of actual rescues. Volunteers dedicate dozens of hours to training, often invest financially in their own gear and gas money, and vow to head out at a moment's notice, leaving their families at the breakfast table or getting out of bed in the middle of the night to answer the call. We very much operate as a team and not an individual collection of heroes. We know that no one can do it alone. Uh, we know that it's not possible for one person on the team to be successful and others to, to fail. We, we sink or swim together. For Michael Wachert, that camaraderie keeps him coming back as a volunteer for New Hampshire Mountain Rescue Service in the White Mountains. When you know that somebody that you've climbed with, that you spend a lot of time with, you know, really close friends on the team or in, in several instances, people's loved ones as well, you kind of want to be there for them, too. My friends are going out there, and I, I feel bad if I wasn't out there with them. I have lived in the White Mountains of New Hampshire since 2008. Began getting involved with our technical rescue organization in 2014, and I've been involved ever since. We are a volunteer team, first and foremost. We'll respond to anything from above treeline search, especially in the wintertime when conditions are bad and, and particularly severe, or a technical rescue, so somebody who's fallen, taking a climbing fall, and they're stuck in the middle of the cliff, and we have to either climb up or lower down to, to rescue somebody. What we really look for is people who are able to respond quickly, who live in the general vicinity of the White Mountains, and who are known entities who we trust and who will work well with a team. As with most SAR groups, the expertise of the team members is dictated by the terrain where they most often work. One of the things that makes MRS unique is that it's a very strong background of climbers. We have professional climbers on the team. Most of us come from a guiding background. For a volunteer team in the United States, we have a high level of knowledge about these sorts of technical rescues. And, and most of us have cut our teeth in places like the Alaska Range or the Himalaya or the Cordillera Blanca or Patagonia. And we also have a huge amount of experience climbing in, in our little mountains in the Northeast, which is a great training venue for those places. Mount Washington and its surrounding mountains are unique in that they're pretty small. Uh, we don't have big terrain and we don't have glaciers and that has advantages and disadvantages. And one of the advantages is that it means that we can usually get to somebody relatively quickly for a volunteer team. The disadvantage is that the weather can be really bad and we're very close to metropolitan areas. We've got Montreal, we've got Boston, and we've got New York City. And so there are sort of these trigger weekends like Memorial Day or winter break and things like that where we know that we're going to see an influx of people heading to the White Mountains. And if we have a Labor Day, knock on wood, where, where there's no call, that would be pretty rare. Climbing and spending time in the mountains is, is something that we normally do for ourselves. And so if we have the skill set to give back a little bit, uh, that's great. 
Physical and technical prowess are only part of what's required to be a successful search and rescue volunteer. The job best suits those with a particular demeanor and a strong dose of mental fortitude. While highly trained, these rescuers aren't professionals. They're civilians who choose to walk into intense scenarios where the outcomes aren't always rosy. The emotional toll is one of the biggest challenges facing SAR volunteers and professionals today. One of my very first calls, it was a very traumatizing scene. A couple in their 50s had been on a snowmobile tour. He was driving and she was riding on the same snowmobile behind him. They had some kind of mishap and they hit a tree very hard uh, with their two teenage daughters on a snowmobile behind them and, and watching the whole thing. And when I arrived, the man was deceased. He was lying in the middle of the trail with a, a blanket over his head. The woman was very, very badly injured. It was a quite a terrible scene. I didn't have much of a role at that point. I was brand new on the team. There were paramedics already working on her. There was a helicopter on the way. All I did was stand there and hold an IV bag for the medic and find gloves for people. You know, of course I felt empathy for the teenagers, but I didn't cry, I didn't feel stressed out, I didn't feel helpless. And I realized that it's all about whether I have a, a job, no matter how small that job is. If I have a role to play, I'm okay. If I don't, then that's a terrible feeling. Many SAR volunteers and professionals will witness trauma during their time on the job. That itself is a heavy burden to bear. On top of it, SAR personnel must weigh the personal risk calculation of entering into the backcountry, often in dangerous conditions, to help another. All told, the job can be very psychologically taxing. Anna DeBatiste of the Colorado Search and Rescue Association said that on many rescues, people don't realize that she and her teammates are all volunteers. Michael Waitchert of New Hampshire Mountain Rescue said the same thing. When you're choosing to be in harm's way, it can be difficult to decide when to take a step back for your own well-being. It's a really hard thing to think about, especially when we're going into avalanche terrain and how we assess that risk of is it worth it? We will oftentimes find ourselves on a search going into a drainage or something like that where suddenly we're there and, and, and it's the middle of the night and we say, oh, we're, we just came into terrain that could slide on us. And I think we've gotten better in the past decade or so of taking that really crucial step back and saying, is this something that we're willing to do? Having the knowledge of what's acceptable risk and what's not is something that we've improved on greatly. And sometimes the heart-wrenching decision as a rescuer is to say, hey, we, we can't do anything in this situation. I think most of us have a relatively conservative approach to what we're willing to accept on a rescue. And I think that's great. I, th I think that's the way it should be, especially as volunteers. Michael and others we spoke to expressed that this is something they wished more people understood about search and rescue. People often imagine that a helicopter will show up and save them if they get in trouble, but it's usually not that simple. And the response differs based on location. You have to know what the response is going to be. And in the United States, it can be a volunteer team, it can be military, it can be national parks. Depending on where you are, the response is going to be completely different. Here in the White Mountains, uh, it will be 
usually fish and game or forest service, augmented by volunteers like ourselves. One of the things that we hear a lot is, oh, I thought a helicopter was coming. And, you know, there's very rare that a helicopter is actually going to arrive in the whites um, based on weather, based on time, visibility, etc. And a lot of times it's people like me who, who are just going to show up with a thermos and say, you know, here's some, here's some tea and then you got to get up and we'll help you move out of here. Those personal interactions are what make volunteer SAR operations unique. Out of sheer goodwill, one community member comes to the aid of another. Neighbors help neighbors. Sometimes, though, there's nothing that can be done. In 2022, SAR teams across the state of Colorado did a total of 100 body recoveries. Anna DeBatiste said that her team, Summit Rescue Group, typically does up to three body recoveries in a year. In 2022, that number reached 10. For SAR professionals and volunteers, the realities of the job are often far more somber than flashy heroics. After decades involved with search and rescue on Denali, Tucker Chenoweth is all too familiar with the mental toll of witnessing years worth of trauma on the mountain. Because of the environment and the limited resources in that environment, we really only try to focus rescue efforts on those that have a threat to limb, life, or eyesight. It's a really serious accident because of the amount of effort it takes to get somebody out of that environment and back to Telkeetna or back to the hospital. We have to triage. We all kind of come to this job passionate about the mountains and passionate about helping people. And I think when you're operating in that level and you get into circumstances where you can't help, whether that's because the terrain is too extreme, there's too much objective hazard with serac fall or rock fall. When your mindset is, I am a ranger and I want to help and you can't help. I think that's a really difficult part of the job. The psychological cost for rescuers hasn't always been a topic of conversation, but many teams are bringing it to the forefront, putting a focus on protecting both the physical and mental health of their members. Here's Michael from New Hampshire Mountain Rescue. I think the important thing is to accept that doing this service to the communities sometimes has a mental toll that rescuers are getting better at acknowledging. For us, I think the most powerful tool we have in the quiver to deal with that side of things is the fact that Mountain Rescue Service is a super tight-knit community and we call each other, we can talk to each other about this stuff. Leaning on teammates is a great place to start when it comes to preserving rescuer mental health. In Colorado, Anna DeBatiste and her team at CSAR are imagining an even better future for search and rescue volunteers with the help of programming and legislation. When it comes to the emotional, mental risk of the work, that can be significant. And one of the things that CSAR worked hard towards over the past few years is legislation and funding for mental health resources across the state. We helped sponsor and pass legislation back in 2020 that mandated a study of backcountry search and rescue, and also mandated that we pilot some mental health training resources. We partnered up with an organization called Responder Alliance, and they piloted a stress injury training program for free for teams across the state. And then my own team at the same time started a, a resilience committee. 
Since the pilot program, the Colorado Search and Rescue Association has continued to partner with Responder Alliance to provide trainings to SAR teams across the state in an effort to foster resilience both on an individual and team level. One of the things that the program teaches is that we need to recognize the signs of a stress injury and take it just as seriously as a physical injury. And that we also need to recognize there's been a longstanding culture of toughness. We don't say to people, hey, I'm having a tough time with that body recovery that we just did. I'd like to talk to someone about it. And so the training really encourages us to have a system for checking in on each other and for recognizing that it's not a sign of weakness to reach out for help. And also recognizing that sometimes it's it's really important for safety reasons to say, I'm not going to respond to that call today. I'm feeling a little stressed. I might not be at my best. That might make me a little bit more dangerous to be in the field with. Rescuer mental health is only one of the many challenges faced by volunteer SAR organizations. SAR teams across the country are busier than ever. Every year, more people are going outside and more of those people need help. Many teams struggle to get enough volunteers, especially for administrative work, which is crucial for teams to function, but less flashy than the in-field rescue work. We can see where things are going, you know, with rising visitation to Colorado, as well as constantly rising residency. And and there was a huge COVID spike to that as well. But even before COVID, it was on an upward trend. We know that teams aren't going to get less busy. They're going to continue to get busier. They're going to continue to have these challenges in the remote areas with recruitment or these challenges with handling the admin load and the fundraising And so, you know, we have been taking steps uh, through the legislature to, to make things more sustainable. Some of our priorities include we need more funding statewide and and from diverse sources. Uh, We would like to see portable workers comp for every team across the state. We'd also like to see some kind of program of uh, reimbursing out-of-pocket expenses. We don't ever expect to pay volunteers. That's that wouldn't be feasible. But volunteers pay out of their pocket for the gear that they need and for the gas to get to missions. And we'd love to see some sort of system to help out with that. Last year, we got legislation passed that gives some civil immunity to both individual volunteers and nonprofit teams, putting us more on a par with volunteer firefighters. And we also got educational benefits for the dependents of any volunteer killed in the line of duty. So we've taken some steps, but we got a lot further to go. As hikers and climbers and backcountry users, we can all support SAR teams. You don't need to be a volunteer rescuer to make a difference. The simplest way is with your fundraising dollars. We estimated that we have combined operational budgets of around 10 million a year across the state. Some states have programs that allow hikers to purchase cards or memberships for a small fee that help cover the costs incurred by local teams in the event of a rescue. Check with your local search and rescue organization to see if this is an option for you. But the best way to support your local search and rescue team is by never needing their services. Remember that safety is your personal responsibility when heading into the backcountry. For Tucker Chenoweth, reminding climbers of that is one of the biggest parts of the job. The amount of effort that we put into the preventative search and rescue and education is is one that tends to catch people off guard. I think a majority of the job is, is just talking to people. 
providing some mentorship, answering some questions at the right moment that they then change their decision at the key time that might prevent an accident. If the mindset going into an expedition into the mountains is self-rescue and you plan for that, then search and rescue members, if in the event you, it's something you can't deal with, we might come. Things have to line up in an environment like this, a lot of things. It's the weather, the aviation resources, the ranger resources, risks the rescuers are willing to take for themselves. And I think that's the piece that I want to stress is SAR isn't an expectation. We really stress self-reliance and self-rescue. The expectation and the mindset for most climbers going on to the mountain is that they'll, they'll do their best they can to take care of it themselves. That allows our resources to remain in place for the more serious accidents that could occur. And when those more serious accidents do occur, SAR teams are poised and ready. Next time on Out Alive. You're constantly aware that this is not a safe place. The conditions are really harsh and you're just relieved to be out of there. And then all of a sudden the radio crackles and we hear Michael's voice just yelling avalanche, avalanche. And the world sometimes just flips a switch. This episode of Out Alive was written and produced by Zoe Gates. Thank you to Tucker Chenoweth, Michael Wagert, and Anna DeBattiste for sharing your time and stories with us. Out Alive is made possible by the members of Outside Plus. Learn about all the benefits of membership at outsideonline.com slash pod plus.